0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. In this season leading up to Christmas, we reflect on that longing. We are a church, as I was explaining in our new members class this morning, which is centered around longing. We long for more grace. We long for more depth. We long for more community. And it's that longing. It's not the possessing. It's the longing that brings us together. That our hearts cry out for these things and that we sense their absence. In this season of Advent, we pour out our longing for his return And if you want to pour things out, there's no better way to do it than in song. So during Advent, we're going to be looking at the songs of Advent from Luke's gospel. You look at the beginning of Luke's gospel in chapters 1 and 2, you find Luke records for us uh, four instances where people burst into song when what they have to say cannot be contained by mere prose. And they have to sing it. They have to sing it. And so we're going to look at these four songs beginning this morning with uh, the Magnificat that we've just heard part of, the song that Mary sings, the first of the four songs that Luke records. Have you ever asked yourself why that is, by the way, why it is that when we have certain kinds of things that we need to express, when we need to uh, open our hearts and reveal our deepest longings, uh, we need music to do it? Like, why do songs have a power that prose doesn't? And look, as a novelist, it pains me to say those words, that there's a power that, that music has that prose doesn't. In fact, uh, Natalie and I, it's been years ago, had a conversation where I tried to explain to her there's nothing special about music, that <laughs> uh, a novel can do anything that a song can do, and she just looked at me like she was talking to a crazy person, and, uh, and maybe she was. Because we all fall back on music, on song, when there are certain things that we have to uh, express. Why is that? Where does that power come from? What is it about songs that, that give them this strength? That's one of the questions I want to think about. Where do songs get their power? But I also want to think about this. Why should we make these songs, these songs that Luke shares, why should we make these songs our songs? Why should these be the words that express our longing in this season? That question, why should we make these songs our songs, I'm going to save that to the end. But I do want to think about where do songs get their power from for just a moment. I was digging through some old boxes in our basement as we were attempting to uh, re- establish some kind of order to the house. I almost said restore order. That implies a previous order, uh, which had never existed but uh, as I was going through all this old stuff that I've kept, I found a mixtape from college. Some of you won't know what this is, but <laughs> music used to exist physically and on, on little plastic cassettes. And, and if you really wanted to connect with people, like your closest friends... You would make mixtapes. You would, you would primitively dub the songs you loved onto a tape. And this one was one made for me by one of my best friends. And, and it, the rapper inside, he was a, a, an artist. He, he drew a picture of us on the front. It's sweet. But, uh, but yeah, I, I wanted to hear those songs again, but I didn't have any way of playing <laughs> the tape. But, but just holding it brought back memories. There was a drive, there was an urge we had to make this thing because it expressed something about who we were and our identity that we could not have conveyed any other way. If you wanted to be our friend, we would give you a copy of our tape and see you know, if we were compatible, if that was going to work out. Where does this power come from? If you think about it simply, I mean, a song, it has two components. It has lyrics and it has music, and the lyrics gain their power By expressing something that we feel or believe or know, but are unable to express ourselves. There's a reason why you you read certain lines, you hear people say certain things and they stick with you. It's because you've felt that same thing. You've, you've wanted some way to express it and now someone has given you the words, given you the words that express that deep knowledge. Like a knowledge or a longing inside you that maybe couldn't be expressed any other way. And sometimes the lyrics of a song say something we couldn't say otherwise. It's why when, when you have a breakup in a relationship, the most satisfying thing would be like to force the person who betrayed you to listen to all the songs that are meant to punish them, right? That you're listening to over and over again. Because it expresses your anguish in a way that you can't do yourself. Right? There's something raw about it, something Powerful in those words that express and reveal the longings of our hearts, things that are usually concealed in our prose, but the music speaks too, or right? the music isn't just random sound, somehow the music also is a language, and it 's a language that tends to elevate or deepen the words, the impact of the words. there's a, a resonance that the sound gives, that makes it all deeper, that, that lifts us out of ourselves somehow. There's something about the music that exposes what we might call the soul. Something raw and real. Something usually inaccessible. So in the text that we're looking at, in the Magnificat, Mary doesn't talk to us, she sings. She sings her words to us And in doing so, opens her soul to us, reveals the longings of her heart to us. She lifts up her soul to heaven. Now, her song follows the pattern of a psalm of thanksgiving. So Mary is channeling a psalmist in parts. Her song also has parallels to the prayer of Hannah in the Old Testament, who had prayed for a son. And, and when that, that son, Samuel, came, she dedicated him to the Lord. And in her thanksgiving, she says things that, that, that feel uh, close to what Mary says as well. But despite these correspondences, the song that Mary sings is her own song, is maybe the highest expression of the ideas that she speaks. So listen to her song, I'm going to read it to you. I'm not going to sing it. But uh, you've had a taste of the beauty already. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. To Abraham and to his offspring forever. Where does the song come from? In opera or in musical theater, you know where songs come from. The characters, their hearts are overflowing. They simply cannot not sing at that moment. And suddenly people just randomly burst into song and start singing. I'm not sure if that's exactly the way we should think about this. And yet, if you look at the narrative, There is a sense in which Mary goes through circumstances, and at the end of them, she cannot help but sing. So the way Luke tells the story, we go through several incidents. First, there's uh, what we call the annunciation, the announcement that the angel Gabriel makes to her, that Christ will come, that she will bear the Son of God. He will be her child. The Son of God will be her son as well. And then after that, there's the visitation where she goes to her uh, kinswoman, Elizabeth, and stays with her for a while. And what happens in those two events, uh, they set the scene. They introduce the material that Mary has to meditate on. We know from later in Luke's Gospel that Mary ponders things in her heart. The things that happen around her are not lost on her. They make a deep impression she meditates on all of this You can see how the events that unfolded in Luke's gospel would have had that effect. The Annunciation, an angel comes to her and tells her to expect this impossible thing, that she will give birth to the promised one. She says, how can this be? I'm a virgin. How is that possible? And the angel says, don't worry about it. The Holy Spirit is going to take care of it. It's going to happen. This will be done. You will give birth to the heir of David, who will sit on the eternal throne of David. That's a lot to take in. It's a lot to have to process in the moment. But she receives it faithfully. She says, let it be. What you've said, let it be so. He actually goes further than that. After she's asked the obvious question, like, how could this happen? And he's answered the question. He goes one further and says, guess what? God has already started doing impossible things that you don't even know about. Because six months ago, your kinswoman Elizabeth, who's barren, who cannot have children, she conceived. And she will bear witness, or she will bear, not witness, she will bear, literally, uh, John the Baptist, the prophet who will make the way of the Lord known. Like This is already taking place. Like Mary is discovering events that have already been set in motion and now is being told the part that she will play in them. And it's all so much. To take in, but she faithfully receives it, faithfully receives it. And then she goes on her visit to Elizabeth. And something interesting happens during that visit. She's greeted in an interesting way. The angel had told her, nothing will be impossible with God. And now, when she sees Elizabeth, there's a reaction that takes place, not just from Elizabeth, but also from her unborn son. The prophet John the Baptist reacts. He plays a part in this scene when Mary walks up and she gives her greeting that the sound of her voice, John the Baptist leaps in the womb of his mother. He leaps with joy at the sound of her voice. And Elizabeth greets her. And Elizabeth says, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. She refers to Mary as the mother of my Lord. So Mary has been told by an angel that all these things will be so, and now on her first outing, she goes out into the world and she receives confirmation. She sees that, the, that what the angel said is true, that, that Elizabeth has conceived, that, that this child has reacted to her very presence, and that... This woman who is senior to you, to her, a a wiser woman, an older woman, one she should look up to as as an authority over her, now defers to her as the mother of my Lord. These things are are mind-boggling. It's no accident and no surprise that she would respond with song because she feels a joy that is ready to burst. You might think John the Baptist leaps with joy at the sound of Jesus' mother's voice. Mary feels a similar joy, a similar need to leap with joy for what is happening. It's as if she were saying, God is doing this. The thing that he's promised, he's actually bringing about. And the promise that she has in mind isn't just the promise the angel made to her. It's not that God said something a few days ago and now It's taking place. It's more than that. It's deeper than that. Because the promise that is being fulfilled is the old promise. It is the one that it was given to her people long ago, given to Abraham and his descendants. This long-awaited promise is now to be fulfilled through her, her personally. She will be the one through whom the salvation of her people comes. Her song flows from the realization that the long-desired Savior is coming through her, through her. That's where her song comes from. But what does Mary's song mean? When we look at the song, it's interesting because the way that I've described it as this overflowing joy, as this ecstatic expression, if you actually read it, you might have difficulty connecting all of the dots. The opening sounds like that. But then she starts getting into other apparently unrelated themes and issues. There's a lot of stuff about rich people getting punished and and poor people getting rewarded. And you're like, well, what does that really have to do with anything, Mary? It doesn't really seem to the point. But it's actually very much to the point if you understand why she feels the joy that she does. My soul magnifies the Lord, she says. My spirit rejoices in God my savior. This is saying the same thing two different ways, twice over. My soul magnifies the Lord is another way of saying my spirit rejoices in God my savior. My soul, my spirit, my inner being, the core of me re- reacts and responds in this way. My soul magnifies the Lord. It doesn't hurt sometimes to read things too woodenly, too literally. Uh when I was looking at this passage, my soul magnifies the Lord. I had just had an interesting uh, interaction with a friend of mine who I, I, because he was getting older, I gave him a magnifier that would allow him to read small prints. And it felt good to give a friend of yours an old age product that you yourself did not need. And he, because this was his first time, he didn't realize, like, if you hold the magnifier too far away, it actually flips the things that you're pointing it at, like it does these weird optical things. So I explained how all that stuff works to him. And then I looked at the text and thought my soul magnifies the Lord. And it made me think of the soul as a kind of magnifying glass, enlarging the Lord. And and literally, woodenly, that is what that word means. It is about enlarging, making bigger. It's almost as if in that moment in that feeling what's happening is that the, the the core of me the soul of me is is enlarging god in such a way that he fills everything he fills the space he fills my eyes he seems immense the difference being of course I mean, he is immense usually we magnify small things so that we can see them better god is already vast you would think he doesn't need any magnification that we can give him, well, he is large, he is vast, and yet somehow he manages to be small in our lives. We manage to see him as if he were infinitesimal at times. And then something happens, and you're filled with this sense of of awareness, of joy. Your eyes are opened, and suddenly it's as if he's become larger. He hasn't. Our capacity to see has been enlarged. We now see him closer to what he truly is. We get a glimpse of the immensity of God, of his plan for history and are filled with this euphoric and breathless joy. That's what Mary feels. My soul, my spirit, my inmost being rejoices in God and enlarges him until he fills my eyes. And then she introduces the two themes of her song, the two ideas that are interwoven. This is uh, verse 48. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. This is the verse that Natalie sang earlier. And these words are really the heart of the song. The two themes that she plays through in the song are introduced here. One is humiliation and exaltation. He has looked at the humble estate of his servants. And the other is covenant faithfulness and this allusion to all generations, which we'll unpack in a moment. But first, humiliation and exaltation. Mary was in a humble estate. She's not saying she was a humble person. She's not bragging about her virtue, that God must have come down and chosen me because of all People, I'm most humble. That's not what she means. She's talking about her humble estate. Her, her state of being is humble. She's not in good circumstances. She's not exalted. She's not from the upper class. She's not the person you would expect. God hasn't come down and appeared to the greatest princess in the land and said, you've been chosen because of your greatness to bear the Son of God. That's not what's happened. He's come to her in a state of Humility. Humble surroundings. So it's not that she is highly meritorious. It is, as we've sung, that she is highly favored. That's different. She sees in herself humble circumstances. And she's been blessed. Blessed. It's not a virtue that's been recognized. It's a gift that has been given. A gift that has been given. And through that gift, a gift will be given to the world. Now, whenever in scripture you see this humiliation and exaltation being played out, you should understand that this is one of the ways the Bible has of talking about the power, the gracious power of God and our dependence upon it. The point is, These things demonstrate that it's the grace of God and not our own strength that is the source of all good things. So constantly in Scripture, you will see the humble elevated and the proud brought low in order to demonstrate that all the good that we have comes not from ourselves, not from our own strength or merit, but from God. That's the point of that comparison. Whenever you see God humbling the proud and the mighty or elevating the poor and the hungry, think it's grace, not strength. It is grace, not strength. God humbles the proud and the mighty. Mary sings, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. In the thoughts of their heart, they were proud on the inside. They felt good about themselves on the inside. And God uses his strength to scatter them those who inwardly rely on their own strength, God confounds. He scatters. Then, Mary says, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Now, the point here isn't that the ones on the thrones don't deserve to rule it's, it's the weak and the poor who deserve to rule, and so God has, has emptied the throne so the people who deserve them can have them. That's not what she's saying. The point is that the people who end up on the thrones do not deserve them. They do not deserve them. They do not sit on the throne where they've been placed because of their strength or their virtue. They sit on the throne because God placed them there by his strength, and it is the only way to sit a throne without being toppled. Those who rule by their own power, God deposes. Only those who rule by God's power are exalted. So he humbles the proud. He knocks the mighty off their thrones, but he also elevates the poor and the hungry. Mary says he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. I hope you're not feeling sorry for the poor rich people. Nobody should have to starve. That's not the point. The point isn't that rich people are going to starve. The point is that those who cannot feed themselves are fed by God, and those who think they have the strength go hungry. Because again, all that we have, we have from God. All that we have, we have from God. We are fed by God's grace, not by our own strength. In other words, as Mary says in verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. Mary sings here as an individual. She sings as a woman and as a mother, but she doesn't sing as only those things. She is those things, but not only those things because she speaks here for all of us. Mary speaks for Israel when she speaks these words. She sings a song on behalf of, of us all, because the Bible says the people of humble estates are the children of Israel. Those are the people surrounded by strong enemies. Those are the ones that God has elevated despite their lack of strength. And he's done it for his own glory. He's done it so that he might be magnified in the eyes of all people. So Mary here finds a voice and speaks for us all. Not just of humiliation and exaltation, but also of that second theme, covenant faithfulness. And in her song, Mary shows herself to be, if you'll pardon the uh, anachronism, a pretty good covenant theologian. Mary understands her covenant theology pretty well. All this reference to generations is interesting. Mary takes a long view, a historic view of what's happening. It's not all about her. She's not just excited because she's going to have a baby and that baby is going to be really special. She's excited about what that child means for all generations. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, she says. And she's not bragging. She's not saying, hey, guess what? From now on, everybody's going to have to call me blessed no matter who they are. That's not the point. It's that through her, all generations will have cause for praise, Everyone will have a reason to give thanks because of the gift given to her. We often have a privatized and very individualistic view of what God is doing in the world. It's all about us. It's all about our salvation. Right? The faith is whatever it is to us. Our relationship with Jesus Christ, that personal and private thing. But here, Mary isn't taking this, this narrow view she has a vast view of the work of God throughout history. She takes a covenantal view of what God is doing. And his mercy, she says, is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Mary demonstrates she has what we might call a covenant memory. This isn't just about me or just for me. It is for us. It is for the people who have gone before and those who will come in the future from generation To generation, God has kept faith with his people. He has helped his servant Israel, she says, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. I've said this again and again, but when you see words like that in remembrance of his mercy, that's covenant language. When the Bible talks about remembering, do this in remembrance of me, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy, these are covenant recognitions. God, we're told, when Israel is in captivity in Egypt, that God, at a certain point, remembered his promise that he had made, which doesn't sit easily with the idea of an all-knowing God. You're like, how did he forget? That's not the point. It's not that he forgot and needed to remember. It's that th- this idea of memory is how that long-sustained generation after generation covenant is invoked. That there is a memory, there is a commitment that stretches back ages. When the uh, Allied troops landed in France, to began to drive the Nazis back in 1944, General Eisenhower proclaimed these very obscure words to the French. He said, Lafayette, we have come. You're thinking, okay, well, we're not all history nerds. We don't know what you mean, Eisenhower. What he meant was that the Americans wouldn't have had their revolution and their independence had it not been for the support of the French, embodied by the Marquis de Lafayette, who is this little uh, young Frenchman who is a protege of George Washington's. And so years later, generations later, generation after generation, When those who had helped us needed help, Eisenhower says, we're now answering the call. It's like in the second Lord of the Rings movie, The Twin Towers, when all the men are concerned that they'll have to face the orcs alone, and then at the last moment, the elves march in, and they're good at marching really precisely, and the leader of the elves says, we made a commitment long ago. We're here to honor it. They made a covenant, in other words, or keep it. Now if General Eisenhower and the elves can keep their promises, Can't the God of the universe? Can't the God of the universe keep his promises? It's not an accident, but at the beginning of the New Testament, Mary goes back to the book of Genesis to understand what's happening to her. She says, "This is the promise that was made to Abraham. This is the promise that was made in the book of Genesis at the very beginning of the story, now being fulfilled in our lifetimes. Of course she sang, of course she felt joy. God had promised to save, and now he was keeping that promise by sending Christ into the world. That's what our song means, but why should it be our song? Why should we make this song our song? It's interesting, I think, The Apostle Paul could have easily sung this song. All of the apostles shared this covenant memory that Mary demonstrates so well in her song. All of them understood that the story of Israel's humiliation and exaltation was a type and a shadow of Christ's humiliation and exaltation. And that in this interesting sort of circular way, if you understand Israel as the people of God, that, that that type and shadow, which reflected the reality of the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ, also that humiliation and exaltation of Christ revealed a pattern for the lives of the people of God, that we too would experience the same thing, that we in this life would be brought low so that we might be exalted with him, seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. In the book of Galatians, Paul says this, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say "and to offsprings," referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. If you look at the end of Mary's song, she says, "This promise is made to Abraham and to his offspring forever, to his seed forever." It's exactly the same word that Paul uses in Galatians, uh, "spermati." is the word, to your seed or offspring. And Paul says the promise isn't to Abraham and to this multitude of offsprings that follow after him. The promise is to Abraham and to his offspring, to his seed, who is Christ. That Christ is the heir of Abraham the inheritor of the promise to Abraham, and that all who are in Christ, all who are joined to Christ as his brothers and sisters become fellow heirs of that promise. We are the people of Abraham. We are the people of Abraham because we are one with the offspring of Abraham. Despite our humble estate, in other words, We have been blessed. We have been favored. And it is not because of our own strength. We have none. It is because of grace. There's a reason why we share the songs that reveal our hearts. The reason why we make mixtapes or playlists and we want to force them on other people so they can know the songs that we love. And the reason why is we want to be known. And if we find something that seems to reveal who we are, that expresses something deep about us, inexpressible in other ways, we want to share it with others so that they will know us. We say, this is my song. This is my anthem. This music speaks for me. It speaks for me. It's an emotional appeal. But Mary's song is more than an emotional appeal. It's more than an emotional appeal, but at the same time, it's not less than one. It is an emotional appeal, and then some, and then some. It is also a song that turns a profound theology of human salvation into a full-throated cry of the human heart. As we've said before, the best theology can only be sung. It should lead to doxology, to praise. Mary's song turns the doctrine of the covenant into an ecstatic leap of joy and that's what the doctrine of the covenant is meant to be. A joy, generation after generation, those who historically speaking are far off from the promise can find joy in the expression of it, in the faithfulness of God manifest in the coming of Christ and in the promise that he will return again. Now sometimes people in church will object to things being pre-written. Now there are people who might come to a service at grace and and look at, 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 at a prayer, for example, and say, well, what kind of a prayer could that possibly be? It's written out in advance. That couldn't possibly be sincere. You should pray from the heart spontaneously. This sort of thing, just writing it out in advance, that's quenching the Holy Spirit. There are some people who would say, You're preaching a sermon, and and you've got notes already written down. You're quenching the Holy Spirit with that. You should just say whatever comes to you, whatever you feel. Those people never feel that way about music, though. Nobody ever objects to the fact that the lyrics are already in the hymnal. Nobody objects that the notes are already on the page. You would think that they would say, look, musicians, get that music away. Just play what you feel. Play what the Spirit leads you to. And the reason they do that is they know for some weird reason the spirit only leads to this free-form jazz thing. (laughs) And it's not real worshipful. The power, the magic, whatever you want to call it, isn't in the composition in that moment. It's in the enactment. It's not in coming up with the words. It's in making the words yours. Making them your own. Owning them. That's where the power comes in the song when you make it your own. We can pray the Lord's Prayer, and it can be our prayer, our words to Him, even though they're the words He gave us. Because we've owned them and we've made them ours. is not in the composition. It's in the enactment, the appropriation, the act of singing and owning the song. And this song of Mary's, this Magnificat, is a sung theology of joy. And we need more joy in our faith as much as we need more theology. This is a song that we need to enact and appropriate, a song that we need to make our own. Our humble estate is our sin and our absolute powerlessness to deal with the consequences of that sin. By right, we should be trampled underfoot. And yet, instead of that, we've been blessed and will be exalted and seated on the throne. And it's all because of Jesus. It's all because of this child who was promised that Mary sings about because of him. All this is true. This is, as the psalmist says, the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And sometimes you need to do more when you're confronted by this than just nod your head in agreement. Sometimes you need to do more than just mumble an amen. Sometimes you've got to sing it You've got to make it your song and proclaim it so that your heart can leap with joy. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.